0: Amon M, at hamish 40 Ben H, at Victor07961508, Matt B, Cyril O, Chris T, Sandro C, at DasHa5, Barry G, and Harry C. New guest on the program today, John Chimpagla has joined us. John is the Chief Executive Officer at Sprott Asset Management and Senior Managing Director of Sprott, Inc., Sprott has a number of investment vehicles, including the new Sprott Physical Uranium Trust. You can learn more at their website, sprott.com forward slash uranium. The Physical Uranium Fund is listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange under the symbol U.UN in Canadian dollars, U.U in U.S. dollars, and also on the U.S. OTC markets under the symbol S-R-U-U-F. John, welcome to the program. How are you, sir?
1: Great, thank you for having me. Appreciate it, trying to finally enjoy summer. Uh, and I think a lot of market participants are doing the same. So we're we're in
0: summer doldrums, but I think uh, well-deserved for for most people. I think you've been busy uh, running the airwaves on the, the new trust. And of course, uh, the gold is bumpy. Uranium is uh, stagnant at the moment. And hey, we, we wouldn't have it another way. So uh, exciting to see what happens in the fall here. Well, John, we have a lot of ground to cover with questions, and I want to cut right to it. And apologies to the audience uh, if we didn't get your question. But first off, can you just give us a quick update as the current status on purchasing and also raising capital?
1: Sure. Well, it's only been a few weeks now since the new uh, uranium trust became live on the on the TSX, uh, July nineteenth to be exact. So. I would say we're still kind of seasoning the fund and and getting the trading volumes to pick up as uh, many of the broker dealers have now made the the, the conversion on their their ends in terms of their records. And uh, we're pretty excited to have this uh, as a new uh, addition to our suite of physical metal funds. Uh, People I think know Sprott pretty well for our uh, presence in the precious metals uh, category where we have a number of physical gold, silver, platinum, and palladium funds. And we think the Uranium Trust is uh, the perfect addition and, and very well-timed for what we think is the emerging new uh, bull market that's forming in Uranium. So the fund is is uh, alive and kicking. We did the reorganization from Uranium Participation Corp. The shareholder response to our transaction was overwhelmingly positive with 99.2% of investors uh, voting in favor of the transaction. So I think that speaks volumes in terms of the marketplace reaction to our involvement. I think a lot of market participants are very excited to see Sprott uh, enter the uranium, the physical uranium category, given the, the, the breadth and depth of our reach with all things related to commodities. I think one of the things that's been really uh, surprising to us is how much interest there's been in the new trust from, from different investors of all types and right around the world. Uh, and also how uh, many precious metals investors have um, have been interested in uranium as well. I think there's some commonalities between the two categories. Um, they tend to be somewhat contrarian. They're obviously both commodities um, and they both represent a lot of value to a lot of people in terms of their current pricing in the marketplace versus where people think the pricing should be over, over time. So uh, we're pretty excited about having the new trust finally uh, after a very long
0: courtship um, on our shelf. John, that sounds good. I appreciate that. Uh, Interesting times here. I just wanna slide in here with one other thing on this kind of broad topic. You know, With the broad general market where it is today, some people calling it substantially overvalued here. How do you think this uranium thesis plays out as far as the timing with broad market? Do you think that there's a 2001 type scenario with commodities starting to rise while the broad markets come down? a sell-off across the board, like a 2008 type scenario, given that we're late stages in the broad market, but early stages with uranium. How do you think that this plays out?
1: Sure. Well, the investors that that I've spoken to personally, and, and many of them I would categorize as is, is, is very knowledgeable, uh, sophisticated institutions and family offices, they've been attracted to uranium. And I don't mean just in the last few months, but in the last two to three years, because uh, you know, as you said, in in a in a market environment where just about every asset class is trading at all-time record highs or record high valuations, uh, there are some investors out there, uh, believe it or not, that still exist that are somewhat value-oriented, even though value's been uh, the tougher of the of the two uh, market approaches um, of late. But there are still investors that are value-oriented and contrarian, and they're looking for pockets of value in what they see. Overall, is a very inflated market, whether those are equities in general or obviously different parts of the credit market. So, in a in an environment of endless money printing and, and uh, central bank support and fiscal stimulus, um, valuations are stretched on, on on many things. If you look at something like physical uranium and the uranium stocks, I mean, this category has had a miserable time uh, for about the last 10 years, uh, really starting from from Fukushima. Um, in 2011 very long protracted bear market and um, you know the sector has gone through a very uh, tough and agonizing reset Um, that we think is behind and now the market is starting to build a new base and starting to set itself up for what we think is a new bull run so we're definitely seeing interested investors uh, that are looking for value looking for kind of a contrarian trade when there, when there are a lot of crowded trades in, in other categories. So, I think that's very interesting. The marketplace on the Uranium side is clearly out of balance, meaning that the supply that's currently uh, coming online is, is not there to meet the, the annual needs of, of uh, the fleet of reactors worldwide. So, the, the, the Uranium producers have become much more disciplined in terms of shutting in production. Uh, Clearly, the uranium companies do not want to have all this production shut in because it is expensive to put mines on care and maintenance, but it's obviously more costly to uh, mine something where you're not making a sufficient return on your invested capital. So there is a lot of idle supply out there. It's not going to come back to, um, it's not going to come into the market unless there is an incentive price to do so. Um, that's the feedback we've gotten from a lot of the different uranium producers. So I think the market is going through this supply supply demand you know, reset or, or trying to rebalance itself to find a new level of equilibrium. As sooner or later, the secondary supplies and stockpiles run down and the market's going to be forced to come in and to reload their inventory. So we think the headwinds that the uranium market has faced for much of the last 10 years are starting to turn into tailwinds, and and I, and that's really why we we got involved with this transaction and, and spend you know the better part of two years working on on this uh, this particular transaction.
0: Appreciate that. Well, let's dive in here because we've got mm-hmm. a lot of stuff to talk about on some of the things you just skimmed on here. First off, any purchasing goals that you want to state to be achieved by the end of the year? Well, it's really a function of the market. Um, if
1: there is market demand for the trust. The trust will have the ability to uh, to grow and issue new units. It's something we've done very successfully with our, our with our gold and silver uh, closed end funds, where we've implemented something called an at the market offering, and we run this program uh, for all of our closed end funds, which basically allow the funds to issue un- new units on a non dilutive basis to the marketplace uh, when there are periods of demand or, or market interest and and it, we find it's a very effective way to grow the fund uh, one of our primary objectives is to make the fund larger to make the fund more liquid and the reason for that obviously uh, is is self-evident in terms of the financial interest we have but I think more importantly it will allow the marketplace to evolve attract larger institutions who want to get involved in in the space but really don't have a lot of options to do that uh, or the options they have are are, are not necessarily something they're comfortable with doing so we think the trust uh, is a really good vehicle to scale and to size and provide liquidity to market participants as the interest in the trade broadens we don't have any specific targets in mind other than you know we 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 want to grow the, the trust by multiples of where it is today the fund is still quite small at about 630 million dollars in size and i say that you know i'm not trying to be too cheeky but it is small when you when you compare it to other commodity stockpiling funds in the marketplace and i think that's just a reflection of where we are in the cycle um it hasn't attracted a lot of capital other than the last six or so months where you have finally seen a, a flurry of activity of buying interest uh, and those are all really good signs uh, and, and 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 evidence that the the cycle has turned and a broad a broad uh, range of investors are getting involved in the uranium market again
0: well John, so let's make a goal for first quarter 2022 to see that round off at about a billion. Let's get there. Well, let's move on here for a moment. Does it matter to you John, and for those who understand the full details of this current market situation, that you buy uranium at say $18, $24, $30, or even $35 other than being cheap? Are you just splitting hairs at this point given that I hope The Sprott team fully understands that this market must go to incentive price and likely beyond that. Therefore, it doesn't matter if you buy it at 32, 35, because we know where it's headed.
1: Well, you know, at the end of the day, the the way the program works is we raise capital and we we put that uh, we put that capital to to work as quickly as possible. One of our primary objectives with the trust is to be at least 90% invested at all times. Um, but our, 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 true goal is to be closer to a hundred percent invested at all times. So we want to raise capital and we want to put that money to work, um, as soon as possible. Uh, we want to minimize any tracking error in the fund and any cash drag. So, you know, we, we will basically buy at the spot price. That's, that's really our goal is to buy at that spot price. And if the spot price drifts higher, um, then, you know, we're forced to buy at that higher price. So, um, we hope that the fund will act as a catalyst to provide more spot market activity, more spot market price discovery and transparency. I think that's one of the, one of the pieces of feedback I've gotten from a lot of market participants, uh, everything from investors right through to producers, is that they would like uh, more activity, more frequent activity in the spot market to help facilitate true price discovery. Now we can't control that ourselves. You know it, it it takes investors to to give us capital and contribute to that cause. But you know if there is investor interest, uh, we will put that capital work irrespective of where you know spot pricing is. we will we will ensure the fund is invested at all times. So um, and you know, your point about incentive pricing, um, you will see different um, research reports forecasting where they think incentive pricing is. Um, I've seen everything from, you know, ranging from 50 to $60 a pound. Uh, and, you know, just this week, you know, U308 dipped down to about $31. So it's been, it's been quiet the last couple of weeks in the market. I think that's just normal summer, August doldrums. I do expect that market activity will perk up as we get into the fall and the, uh,
0: the capital raising activity of the trust commences. Come back for a moment here. You guys were working on this deal for a while. When did this start? What was the idea? Who who sparked the idea of saying, you know, this is a good time to start looking at taking UPC, we can make it better? Talk about what people were involved and just talk about that initial process as to why you guys thought it made sense to start out and go after UPC. Sure. Well, I think
1: it really started back um, in 2017 when we made an announcement that we were acquiring the Central Fund of Canada and there were a lot of parallels. Uh, Central Fund of Canada was was one of the oldest Gold and Silver Funds uh, in North America. Uh, at the time, it was uh, about $4 billion in size. And uh, we, we did a friendly acquisition to acquire that. Uh, we announced that uh, in late 2017 and closed that in 2018. And we thought, you know, with that particular fund, um, we thought there were a number of things we could do to enhance it, to make it more marketable. Uh, to make it more shareholder friendly, to give it more prominence in the marketplace. you know I think we had a lot of success in doing that in terms of taking a fund that was trade uh, traded historically at a very deep discount to net asset value and, and, and reinvigorating it. So we'd gone through this playbook once before and with UPC it was created way back in 2005 but you know Sprott was was somewhat involved with its creation and its support in the early days. so there was a long history. And we thought, you know, here's a here's a fund that's that's uh, that could use some some uh, some re you know to, it could be re-energized And uh, we thought it's it's the sector is really washed out right now. And you know, what would be a great time to kind of get behind this and give it a boost when we think the cycle is about to turn. And that was uh, just over two and a half years ago. And I think a lot of uranium investors have told me the same thing, which is. You know, we were a bit early. We started building positions in 1819. Um, you know, questioned ourselves a lot, but they're feeling very good about where they are right now. Um, so we had similar views of, of, you know, there was value there. There was, there was an opportunity for the market to reset. Uranium prices were just abnormally low. Uh, and why would anybody, why would anybody want to sell uranium at, at such deflated prices back in 2018 and 2019? And we went through a process of of determining, should we start a new fund from scratch? Should we buy a fund? And I think we concluded pretty quickly that buying an existing fund that happened to be the first of its kind back in 2005 would give us a huge leg leg up in the market in terms of startup. It took us a while to get the transaction done. The UPC board wanted to make sure that they were entrusting uh, their shareholders to the right manager. And, um, you know, I think we, we put together the right transaction in terms of uh, financial consideration and all the other consideration that Sprout brings to the table in terms of its network, uh, its reach and its resources to really promote the fund and to scale it and, and provide investors with more liquidity over time. So, yeah, I'm happy we did it at the time. It felt like forever, but um, I think the market response we've gotten so far has uh, has made it worthwhile so far, and we're just we're just getting out of the batter's box. So um, we're happy that uh,
0: we were able to do it, and the market response has been great. Well, John, I hope the UPC board was delighted with you guys coming to the table. Um, I think it was a good move on their part here, and I understand that Sprott is planning to be very aggressive in providing price discovery in the spot market. And the Sprott vehicle is not just here to collect some management fees. Give us some figures if you can. Or maybe just talk to your level of aggression, because I assume this will not be like the former UPC or a vehicle like Yellowcake, which have both been too passive in my view, and in the case of maybe Yellowcake here, a little bit too fat in regards to GNA. So you know what's your guys's level of commitment towards aggression and making real price discovery?
1: Well, I think it really starts with offering something in the marketplace that is shareholder centric. And what I mean by that is everything from your product design to the product features, these were all key variables that the UPC really dissected to make sure that, you know, the, the transaction made sense for everybody. So I'll start with the investment structure itself. I think that's really important. UPC and Yellow are both corporate structures. Uh, they're, you know, co- commodity stockpiling companies uh, or holding companies. And what we have done is reorganize UPC into an investment fund or an investment trust. And it's important for a few reasons. One, the investment fund structure uh, is probably uh, the most uh, prominent uh, investment structure for just about every investor type in the world today. When you think about all the ETFs and, and uh, closed-end funds that trade on exchange today, I mean, there's about $8 trillion of these things right now. It really has become the go-to vehicle in terms of transparency, intraday liquidity, and so on. The trust structure provides a lot of, of really good governance for shareholders. You can't, uh, you know, in terms of governance and G&A, you can't just arbitrarily raise your fees without shareholder approval. So there's a lot of basic shareholder protections within the trust declaration, which is very shareholder friendly. Um, second of all, what we've done is we've moved to uh, daily disclosure of all of our holdings, as well as the valuation of those holdings. And I think this is a really material development in the uranium market. If I contrast that to UPC and Yellow Cake, they disclose these, these, uh, these elements once a month. And I think for the market to get bigger and to, to mature, you need to provide investors with more information. So, disclosure and transparency are very important to us. We think they will facilitate uh, more uh, evolution in the market and also encourage more market participants to get involved. You know, uranium is not the easiest market to understand. It's not like you can just, you know, open up your browser and get a, a price every every 10 seconds on your screen from, from any new service or, 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 or pricing service. Um, most of the uranium pricing is a paid service. So for the average investor, how do they even know what uranium is trading for today uh, per pound? Um, so then how do you know how the underlying investment you want to make Is trading relative to the value of of the spot market. It's really hard. So we've taken all that out of the equation. Uh, we're, We're providing every night, we show you how many pounds that we own of material, how much cash we have, and we calculate a net asset value per unit. Investors can compare that against the closing market price to see exactly how the shares are trading, whether they're cheap or rich relative to underlying spot value. I think that is really helpful. I think that will help the fund trade better in terms of its market price relative to its net asset value. Uh, A lot of investors that we've spoken to over the years want market price and and net asset value to be more tightly tethered together, and I think that helps. Um, Some of the other little things that we did, we we now are offering the fund in U.S. dollars, so you can purchase in, in Canadian or U.S. dollars. We've also changed the financial reporting to all U.S. dollars, Again, why do we do these things? Well, it's, it's a US dollar driven market in commodities. Uh, many of the investors we have are, are US uh, based, so put everything into, into a currency they're comfortable with. The at the market offering I think is another important development in terms of that price discovery mechanism. And then the last thing we committed to as part of the transaction was to pursue a US listing on the New York Stock Exchange. And that's something that is is the next phase of of this transaction for us. Over the next couple of months, we'll be working with the New York Stock Exchange to ready our listing application. And the reason we're able to do this, and UPC was not, was it comes down to that first thing I mentioned around investment structure. Um, Companies, corporate issuers, cannot apply to a U.S. exchange to be a commodity stockpiling fund. Only investment funds can. So this reorganization from a corporate structure to the investment fund structure was really the key step that will pave the road to this U.S. listing application. So it will take a number of months to work through the SEC. It will be considered a novel listing, so it's never been done before in the United States, but we're very committed to this. And also, Sprott will be footing the bill for this, and that was another key element of the transaction consideration. Sprott will be paying all the legal fees related to the U.S.
0: application. John, let's talk about that for a moment here on the U.S. listing. When do you really realistically see this happening? I'm assuming sometime maybe Q1 uh, 2022. And also given the existing network at Sprott, do you guys see any hurdles that may trip this up? The SEC, um,
1: it's impossible to know how long they will take and how they will react to a listing application because they won't give you feedback uh, until you actually formally start the process. So we have gone through this listing process for commodity stockpiling funds five different times, so uh, we're well accustomed to it. We have great lawyers that help us through it. The New York Stock Exchange is, is very important uh, in the process because they actually make the listing application to the SEC on our behalf. Uh, so we've gone through it many times. The process can take as little as four months, but that's for, generally listings, that's for listings that are not considered novel. Uh, this, as I said, would be considered novel because it's never been done before. So we think it's going to take a little longer than the four months. So it's impossible to know until we get into the into the process with the SEC. Um, but it is most likely a Q1 2022 type of timeline. Um, we don't think there's going to be any real hurdles. Um, you know, the, the reality is, is the TSX listed units that we have today we're able to, to offer, you know, most investors access to, to that, and so um, I don't want to belittle the fact that we're just on the TSX right now. Having the new New York Stock Exchange listing, I think, will really open up the door to to more liquidity, more institutional interest, and and whatnot. So uh, we do think it it will be very important for the trust to be duly listed, as all of our other trusts are. Um, so the, it's really about the unknowns right now because no one has really gone through the process with the SEC um, and that's that's always something that you have to kind of take step-by-step step, day, day to day.
0: John, is it pretty much novel in the sense that uh, we want to start a baseball card stacking fund or we want to stockpile Coca-Cola or chocolate? Is that what you mean by novel? Yeah, so when
1: I say novel, it, it just basically refers to the fact that the SEC uh, has not approved a similar vehicle. Uh, And so we know that there are lots of commodity stockpiling funds in the US that are related to all of the precious metals, for example. Uh, We know that about 10 years ago, there were applications made uh, for physical copper funds, which in the end, the SEC did approve. Um, The sponsors ultimately decided not to launch them because the commodity cycle had turned. But you know, going back 10 years or so. The copper trusts that were filed were were at that time novel listings, and um, they did take a little longer to get approved than, than you know your, your established gold and silver funds. But in the end, they did get approved. Um, you know, it was ultimately the sponsors that decided not to proceed with them. So we looked at those copper trusts as, as uh, potential precedents, albeit they are they are kind of old now in terms of when they work through the regulatory process. But you know, in the end, I think the SEC their process is very solid in terms of ensuring that uh, vehicles are approved on the exchange, that provide investors with a very high level of transparency and protection, uh, and that you know there is clearly a liquid and transparent market underlying these values, so that investors are making informed decisions. So, um, you know, it
0: takes a little longer, but I think in the end you get a better result. Yeah, and I think, you know, the TSX listing works well. And then of course you guys already have New York listed uh, other precious metal funds. So that's also in your favor there. So I it all sounds pretty positive here. It's just a matter of I think jumping through the hoops, John. I want to go back uh, for a moment and talk on something you said earlier. And I want to go back and, and maybe just pick on yellow cake here for a moment. You know, my understanding is they did not exercise their twenty twenty option uh due to net asset value splitting hairs again, John, in my opinion, based on the current uh price of uranium now and then. If you guys are at a net asset value break even or maybe even a little negative, does that influence your decisions to buy uranium when the price is right?
1: Yeah, so the number one condition we have to satisfy is not issuing new units at a price lower than the prior day nav. And this is a fundamental shareholder protection because essentially what it what it does is it doesn't allow the sponsor of the fund to issue new units at a, on a dilutive basis. And that's really important. And that, that really keeps the integrity and credibility of your fund intact. So we will, we will have to ensure that everything we do is accretive to the fund on that, on that basis. Um, so as long as we've got some premium to work with to net asset value, we'll be active in the marketplace. And I think the one benefit of the ATM versus the prior history of say UPC uh, I like to call it the "the stars must align" scenario, where you need to have a lot of interest in the in the underlying asset. You need to have enough premium uh, in order to pay the different fees related to a transaction. You then raise the capital and tell the market you're going to go and buy a big chunk of material. And then what happens inevitably is you you go kind of dark for a period of time. It could be months. It could be a year. Um, and you know. It's great you you grew your fund. Uh, that was the right thing to do, but it's it it's it kind of goes into a sleep mode. And um, we think it's important to be more active on a more frequent basis, uh, and just kind of chip away at the market, um, raise capital in smaller dollar amounts but more frequently uh, to keep that kind of spot market activity going and to and to accumulate pounds more frequently. I think that's the that's the scenario that we think. Uh, Will serve investors best, and it's the it's the scenario a lot of investors have said to me. You know that's what we want the trust to do. We want the trust to uh, not raise a bunch of money and then go into sleep mode. We want it to be more of an active, ongoing,
0: and, and consistent participant in the marketplace. Let's switch gears for a moment, John. Do you believe that the global existing mine capacity, both producing and those that are on care and maintenance, can sustain the fuel demands of utilities going forward? Or do you have another position that the bulk of the development projects that are in the pipeline must be brought to mind reality, of course, at incentive price or above mm. to serve future consumption? Yeah, that's a great question. So
1: there's a lot of shut-in capacity, as you referenced. Um, that capacity can come come back online within a reasonable amount of time. That's the e- Those are the easy-to-get pounds. And hopefully those pounds coming on back online with the, at the right price will help keep the market in balance. Uh, the reality is, is that all reserves are depleted uh, daily and the, any kind of uh, commodity in the mining space needs to invest and uh, finance new exploration and development because as you know, the lead times on these projects is not getting any shorter. Uh, it is not uncommon to see a project go through a ten-year cycle uh, from initial initial drilling and discovery to financing and and development and and obviously there's a ton of permitting and social contracting and uh, all everything in between and and e, all things ESG. So the lead times are enormous. So the shut-in production obviously is, is your first line of defense to to meet demand, but uh, even even those producers need to constantly uh, find new reserves. And sometimes those new reserves are obviously not the same cost points and cost curves. So that that, that may require higher incentive uh, pricing for, for them to come on board. I think the bigger picture idea here is this bear market that we've gone through for most of the last 10 years has really um, resized the market. A lot of Uranium companies have, have come and gone. Um, the capital that's gone into the discovery and development of, of new assets uh, has, has been very muted. And whenever you see that happen, um, there, there is a risk of supply disruption or um, potential shortages, it, it, unless there's an incentive for companies to spend the money. And let's face it, um, a lot of capital is, is, has not been, other than the last, say, Six or nine months, a lot of capital has not come into the sector for for many years, as investors have been focused on other areas. So it's important for the entire industry to have the right financial incentives to to keep the industry healthy. And and um, you know the utilities obviously consume your, the uranium and they need to replenish it. I don't think it's in their best interest to have a, a uranium price that's that's in, that is too low uh, for the producers because the industry will will basically shrink and 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 die over time if if the incentive isn't there to keep to to keep uh, exploring and to keep developing these projects and bringing existing mines back online. So I don't know what that magical you know equilibrium price is, but you know clearly there are a lot of um, uh, of mines that are shut in right now and and the producers have been very disciplined in terms of saying we're we're not bringing these pounds back online uh, unless we see a higher price. So something's got to give.
0: Um, if it doesn't give, then you've got a a bigger problem to deal with. I think that the uh, the lead time's underestimated lead time from a capital decision also the investment that needs to go into that what's the lead time from that decision point to raise capital and then start a project construction or a restart certainly MacArthur river for example is is probably an 18-month exercise to get things up and going and maybe not even fully ramped at that point then you tie that in with the contracting cycle, the term contracting cycle, that is certainly before us over the next few years that will have to start, uh, especially if you're a U.S. utility, probably has to start within the next two years. It's a great setup to where we have all these convergence of factors. And then, of course, as you said, the uh, the social license, the uh, the ESG component, environmental component, as far as getting these projects permitted. It's not It's difficult to permit a project anywhere in the world now, let alone Canada or the U.S., or you know places like Spain for example so and then there's chance the projects never get permitted another one here for you and it's probably a good chance that certain parties in this market at some point probably ask you not to make purchases possibly a utility or an agent of a utility what's the Sprott response if this comes about and do you guys plan to have any relationships in the market in that way or is Sprott's determination for the unit holders first and foremost and as Full-on competition in the spot market. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, the utilities obviously um, would like to
1: see prices stay as low uh, as low as they can be for as long as they can be. But you know, I think my my position was that's not sustainable. So you're you are really running risk of supply. Uh, maybe not this year or next year, but longer term, um, they do run the risk that the security of supply will not be there. So I don't think that's sustainable. At the end of the day, I think this fund um if i if, if the way i'm thinking about it is this fund is really another utility in terms of a, a a buyer in the market for 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 material the difference is with a utility they buy material it it has a life in the reactor and then it it gets stored away as waste the with the trust it obviously is stockpiling material and not consuming it not selling it back into the marketplace so that's the the key difference there but yeah, I absolutely expect to be competing with with other market participants that are interested in buying it. And obviously the the largest user of uranium is the is the fleet of reactors. So, uh, yes, I'm sure there will be some some competition uh, for material. We will be, I guess, operating in a different segment of the market. we're We're not looking to buy material with you know many years in the future delivery. That's not something we're interested in doing. Uh, and that's obviously the preferred contracting route that utilities take. Uh, we would like to take more near-term delivery. Um, and, you know, in contrast, in sharp contrast to some other markets, near-term delivery in the uranium market is not the same. Uh, meaning, like, when we buy gold and silver, uh, I expect it to have the gold in my vault in maybe two weeks. Uh, and depending on where the silver is coming Uh, From around the world, the the silver might take three or four weeks, or maybe six weeks if I have to ship it from London. Uh, And you know, the uranium market near-term delivery can be, you know, easily three months. So it's a it's a very different definition. We expect to be buying more in the short end of the of the marketplace with more near-term delivery, uh, whereas the utilities will be playing out with uh, many you know many months or sometimes years until until they take physical delivery. They just they just buy differently.
0: John, on that topic, delivery lead times, does the trust will they establish a policy or maybe there's a policy in place to purchase uranium for delivery within 30 days? or maybe like we've seen, those delivery lead times tend to stretch out three to six months. Uh, do you believe that a 60 or 90 day window is a good policy? Are you guys going to be flexible? Will you have a pretty hard policy to keep this on the shorter end?
1: So we don't have a set policy, but you know all things being equal, the shorter the better in my mind. Um, that's not always possible, but that's what we're going to strive to do. Yeah, as I said earlier, the, the, the near-term delivery definition uh, generally in the Uranium world is, is within three months, and, and I understand why that is. Uh, the time it takes for you to mine the material, to put it on uh, the first set of, of shipment uh, usually goes to a port, so truck to port, Port to uh, to a conversion facility. Uh, some of those distances around the world are quite far. If you think about places like Australia or Kazakhstan, they're going that material is going a pretty uh, long distance to get to say France or the uh, United States or Canada, where the primary facilities are. So it takes time. I understand that it's it's not like you know putting a pallet of gold on a on a on a plane and, and zipping it over in, in a day or two. But we would like to try to focus on near-term delivery if possible.
0: Uh, that's where we're going to focus a lot of our buying activity. Sure yeah because you know longer lead time obviously you could put there you guys buy it Chemico delivers it to you in 24 months I mean you know gets into that type of situation where a silly setup rather than forcing the hand of the market and actually deriving you know spot price discovery. Let's come back here for just a moment uh, in the trust agreement if, if memory serves me here I believe it's section 7.2 manager of duties. It specifies the use of industry standard tenders and direct negotiations and off-market transactions to achieve best prices available. How will this policy lead to spot price discovery?
1: The uranium market is is uh, unlike any other commodity market what we've worked in so far, uh, given it's, it's a handful of producers and a handful of traders um so we've drafted the language to be pretty flexible because the reality is, is uh we need to have we need to have optionality in terms of who we're dealing with um and how we're how we're buying that material um you know we obviously want to to deal with uh participants in the spot market um that but the reality is, is the producers control a lot of the supply you know there's there's a handful of producers that control a lot of material so you know, we need to ensure that we've got a dialogue with them in place along with the brokers that you know tend to be dealing in smaller quantities so we've only bought a couple hundred thousand pounds so far so we're just kind of testing our process and our model you know and I, I think it's probably fair to come back to me in a few months and and ask me how it's how the you know the actual experience has gone once we have some uh, some more uh, opportunity to,
0: to buy. that sounds good John. Hope we can chat to you again here, and and you'll come back after we're done with you on this chat. Given that trust can become a large liquid vehicle, especially if it achieves uh, New York Stock Exchange listing, and as you guys appear to have a pretty ambitious strategy, John, could utilities, traders, or other parties use the vehicle to hedge against rising U308 prices in their future spot reference delivery contracts?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's impossible to know how the the trust will be used, but I think um, as the fund gets gets seasoned, uh, it scales and becomes more liquid. I do think it 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 plays a potential role for different market participants. You know there there is not a, a liquid futures market. so there there aren't many ways to uh, gain exposure to the underlying commodity. Uh, we hope the trust will will help facilitate that for sure. um the other the other issue that we've seen is some market participants, have opted to do their own direct buying and storage. Again, I hope that the vehicle will act as a, as a very competitive alternative to that particular decision, where we've seen some, uh, you know, junior miners and whatnot raise capital and, and, and buy pounds directly. Um, again, if, if, if pounds tend to concentrate to the fund, uh, it'll it'll make it more liquid and, and more useful to I think a greater range of market participants
0: that's that's a very good point and what i wanted to to get to here was is it possible i mean maybe you can talk about this for just a moment but the sector is extremely fragmented john you know that the whole sector is so the point being is you know how do we maximize every penny towards the fund and you just touched on that. You've got a bunch of different funds out there buying. You've got even wannabe uranium companies buying. You've got producers buying to hedge, maybe a future long-term contract or some kind of a bridge between production startup and commissioning. We can fill some of that gap in the meantime type stuff. Some of it's good. Some of it's silliness, but can a uranium company that's a producer, a developer, et cetera, call you guys and purchase units? Is that a possibility? And then also with that, back to what you said, how do you guys attract and encourage the institutions, the family offices, the high net worth, and even pooled retail to go over to Sprout, over buying their own pounds and storing separately of Sprout, Because it's mm-hmm. gonna be in the same warehouse, John. What's your thoughts on those items?
1: Yeah, no, it's it's a really good point. I mean, you have to, I mean, one of our ideas around this, this whole transaction was, um, what was the catalyst that forced certain market participants, and obviously it's not individual retail investor, but, let's say, you know a hedge fund, what prompted them not to buy one of the two existing vehicles that were in the market available to them and uh, buy their own material and and have their own storage agreement? So to me, um there's something there. So I contrast that to uh, let's say the precious metals markets. and you know it, I think there are some some commonalities with when you when you look at the the gold ETFs prior to, The creation of the first gold ETF, you know, owning gold was was a cumbersome, uh, expensive process, complicated. And really what these uh, ETFs provided the marketplace was convenience and simplicity uh, and liquidity. And, you know, I think those are some of the objectives that we're we're trying to to, to meet here. Um, You you shouldn't have an incentive to go and buy your own material and store it yourselves if you've got a competitive, liquid, transparent alternative available to you. And I'm hoping that some of those institutions might say, well, you know, it doesn't make sense anymore for me to, to buy my own material. Uh, why not take advantage of the, of the scale and the cost efficiencies that, that Sprout is, is able to offer? Um, and why, don't, why wouldn't I put those, my dollars to work in, inside a vehicle? That's easier to, to buy, sell and to, to, to own through. So that is one of our goals. Um, we are starting those dialogues with with different parties around that, and I hope I hope we do see I hope we do see uh, some some uh, interest in terms of uh, that behavior. Because I have had institutions say to me that like, I have not we have not bought the prior vehicles for you know reason one two three, and which I always find kind of interesting because it's not like this is an easy category to get invested in. And so if uh, the marketplace uh, was not completely happy with the existing vehicles you know it's it's a good sign that the, the market was ready for for uh, some evolution.
0: Yeah John I mean I'd like to see your man at the warehouse with the Sprout stickers throwing stickers on the existing barrels and, and transitioning all those mixed ownerships into the Sprout vehicle here and then also you guys becoming a potential vehicle for the companies who want to buy the listed companies who want to buy uranium as we saw earlier this year and then like you said you guys would be much better. You guys have better leverage with your networking relationships than a lot of these groups do. So why not go through Sprout? I think it makes sense. And I hope you guys, you know, attack those various parties and, and have a discussion about that. It brings me to the, the extra strategy for this vehicle. I've come up with, of course, some means and methods established for this that we think is viable. And of course, we've written this into our next letter upcoming for members at the end of the month. But can you talk about the exit strategy for this fund when the time comes to sell down holdings? What's your thought on exit strategy? I know there's a lot of different ways we could do this.
1: Yeah, so it's a a good question. I get asked this all the time uh, from investors and and producers, quite honestly, that are interested. Uh, You know, is this vehicle, given we have a, a very large stockpile right now, uh, of about 19 million equivalent pounds of U308, is this vehicle going to be uh, selling material into the marketplace from time to time? And obviously there's sensitivities around that, particularly when there might be some softness in the market, um, which could further you know, compound a downdraft in the marketplace. And my answer is pretty simple. Our intention is not to sell pounds back into the marketplace. Uh, It's important to keep the fund scaled and liquid and uh, selling pounds in the market during those pockets of softness, I find, does not have a meaningful or or lasting impact uh, on what you're trying to do. So our intention is not to sell any pounds back in the marketplace. We will manage the cash in the fund to pay the expenses. And uh, we've done a pretty good job of, um, of doing that with our other trusts where we basically never sell any metal. So that's the goal and i think a lot of participants are relieved because they don't want the fund to be viewed as this secondary supply overhanging the market that could hit the market and and really push the price down like it did a few years back
0: very well john and i know there's there's a lot of other ways we could look at this too and then you know who knows what your opinion may be when when uranium prices at 90 bucks a pound if it gets there you know how you guys monetize and, and how that works, and of course liquidity in the spot market at that time. What that's going to look like, obviously, much different than it is today. And then term contracting, uh, the trader relationships out there. There's a lot of different thoughts that I have on it, but we'll we'll save some of those thoughts for now. If institutionals take up large positions in trust using the proposed ATM program. What will be the unit redemption options? Will the trust have to sell its uranium holdings for redemptions or is it just a matter of taking off the Sprott sticker and putting on the client sticker who redeemed it at the same warehouse? Major selling pressure, you said you're not gonna sell into a soft market. Obviously the trust could then trade at a discount to NAV for some time. How are you guys gonna handle that? Good questions.
1: Um, So right now the, the trust does not have a redemption feature. Uh, and this is a key difference with some of our other products. Uh, gold and silver, if you want to do physical redemption with us, obviously we can accommodate that through armored car service uh, and deliver you those metals anywhere in the world. Uh, obviously, with uranium uh, being probably one of the most controlled uh, elements in the world, um, not so simple. Uh, you can't, you just can't uh, ask for delivery of of of, of uh, uranium. So at this time, we do not have any uh, physical redemption feature or cash redemption feature available on the trust um, for those reasons. So the ATM, just to, to kind of go back a step, is really there to meet pockets of uh, market demand and buying interest. It does not work the other way where we will
0: buy your units back and, and, and sell the, the material in the open market. Okay, John. So let's have a scenario here where uh let's say ABC Uranium Producer Co. buys units, a block of blocking units from you guys. Um, and let's say they want their uranium that they bought redeemed in the same warehouse, for example. So it's just taking off the sprout sticker, sticking on their sticker, the, the material doesn't move, but they need to take that material and then fulfill some type of a trader obligation or some type of a contract. Uh is that possible? Is that a consideration?
1: Yeah, no. At this time, that is not possible. They would have to sell their units in the open market, and obviously, they would get exposure to the to the uranium while they're holding those units. If they were, you know, using the using the trust as a as a way to park cash or to gain exposure without uh, having to do the physical procurement and storage themselves, so they would have to sell their units. Um, another in, another investor would have to buy them. They would they would have cash. And they would be hedged along the way in terms of whatever the uh, the uh, uranium price was along the way. They would they would have exposure to that. But now we at this point we're not doing any any redemption
0: options. Okay, that sounds good. And with the current volumes, uh, speaking to how you guys are going to issue the shares here, my suspicion is it's just simply going to be flexible, John. And you guys are going to be careful about how you issue the units, but not really any concerns with impacting price as far as. You know you guys just matching the day-by-day condition and not dropping a lot of atm shares at one time which would impact prices that basically you guys are going to adjust by volume
1: yeah that that's a really good way to describe it the atm process is completely controlled by us as the manager so we we decide on any given day or any given minute whether we want to to engage or not with our underwriters uh, we control the process which is important and it really depends on market conditions. Uh, we don't want to crowd the market out, uh, so we're very careful to kind of find the right balance between meeting that liquidity need and, and allowing existing investors to kind of sell their units in the marketplace. We've had over five years of experience managing these ATM programs, so uh, we've gained a lot of uh, practical experience. And you know, there's nuances to it. You know, I'm glad we have all that experience because uh, it's it's not just run by computers. There's a lot of human intervention uh, on some very busy days it's it's not uncommon for me to be going back and forth with our underwriters and traders 30 or 40 times in a day uh moving you know checking to see where our levels are uh, looking at where we are relative to spot and trying to figure out how to get material to buy so you know uranium obviously is a different market we we haven't you know bought a large quantity yet so it it's uh it's going to be a kind of a wait and see approach but uh, the experience we've gained with the with the gold and silver trusts has been, I think, invaluable in terms of uh, putting the ATM to work on the uranium side.
0: Johnson, you guys have uh, WMC Energy as your advisor. I'm assuming that that's obviously on the on the front cover here. But you guys have a, a big network of multiple agents to act on your behalf to purchase material on the spot market. Is that correct?
1: Sure. Yeah. So WMC um, uh, Energy, we've hired them to be a technical advisor to us. Um, we're really happy having them on board. They've uh, they've been involved in the transaction for for many months uh, ahead of the the actual closing and and you know preparing us and doing diligence on everything. So they've been really great to work with. Um, they're both based in the United States and um, they're both ex Cameco employees. So they've got lots of experience at one of the largest uranium miners in the world really what we're using them for is to advise us as the manager on all things related to buying uranium and storing uranium trading uranium so we're using we're leveraging their their network of relationships and different trading agreements that they have set in place Um, and they're also acting as you know intelligence in terms of market activity subject matter expertise for help with uh, with different marketing Uh, we have put them in touch with uh, a few institutions so far that wanna, you know, do a deeper dive in the the market or are still doing uh, research on the category before making commitments. So uh, they've been very helpful. Uh, They're very
0: knowledgeable and uh, uh, they've already added a lot of value to the trust. John, I appreciate that. And getting closer here, just got a few more questions left. I appreciate you sticking with us here. A lot of good subject matter. A couple things on the uh, projection models that UPC has and of course you know Yellowcake puts out will you guys continue to talk about um some of the bigger market fundamentals uh and put out those different projection models of you know uncovered requirements etc additional services will the trust continue to put out that research
1: yeah absolutely um education is really important to us not just for uranium but for all the categories we compete in Uh, we think that investor education is is really the starting process to getting any investor uh, interested in, in any of our funds. So we expect to be even more active than, uh, than we are in the precious metals sector because I just think the uranium market is still not well understood. It's still uh, largely dominated by uh, much more sophisticated investors who have been watching the market very closely for the last few years. Uh, if the market interest broadens uh, out to more let's call it uh, different advice channels, intermediaries, and, and do-it-yourself investors. That's when I think you really see a market take off. And um, as I said, if, if, if that investor base has trouble even finding out what the spot price uranium is every day, how do you know, expect them to even get invested or interested in a category? So um, we're gonna be doing a lot of education, content marketing. Our plan will be to do you know webcasts and uh, put out different content pieces on the marketplace you know, one-on-one education and calls with potential investors. So, yeah, we, we definitely think there's a big need in the marketplace.
0: John, any comment on the uh, the thickness, if you will, of this spot market for a moment? Um, and then also, let me couple that with just getting your thoughts on secondary supply. And obviously, you guys are, over the next... Uh, Six to eight months here, you guys, or even shorter, are going to get a pretty good idea of how thick this market really is and if secondary supply is having a a substantial impact at this point or if that's greatly reduced.
1: You know, the spot market, I think, is a a direct function of the market participants. And, you know, the primary buyers, being the utilities, have opted for the most part not to play in the spot market. So, in the absence of the largest natural consumer, who's been in the marketplace to help? the spot market evolve. And I think the answer is not enough players <laughs> or not enough of any size. Um, and I think that's, that's the the potential role for the trust to play uh, is, is that if there is investor interest and, in, and, in, and, um, and capital raising, uh, that's where we intend to be, be the most active. So that that's the, the pot, this, the, you know, the, the, the part of the market, which I think the trust will be most visible within so uh right now I the answer is the the spot market is, is not very active and it's not very it's 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 not very uh uh liquid and and it is not a lot of material for sale on any given day because the 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 market has not been conditioned to to meet you know day-to-day interest there. Um
0: I'm hoping to change that over time. Well, John, if anybody's gonna change that a little bit, it'll be Sprout because they know everything there is to know about buying illiquid junior mining companies. How about uh, the broad nuclear energy stage adoption from Sprott's perspective or from your perspective, you know, are you guys seeing that adoption start to change and the promotion of nuclear starting to change, the stance on nuclear starting to change? And then also, what do you think needs to happen from a policy and awareness standpoint in places like the EU, the UK Mm -hmm. and the US and those types of areas that are, you know, a little bit on the fence about nuclear?
1: We think that that narrative has is, is already begun to change and the policy has clearly uh, started to change. And I think that's what's really exciting about it. You know, I think uranium and nuclear has this stigma attached to it uh, because of, of past uh, accidents and uh, nuclear weapons. And obviously, uh, those were very unfortunate events uh, and uh, very difficult lessons were learned as a result but in reality, nuclear is, is very safe compared to other forms of energy, is incredibly dense and is very reliable. And when we look at these decarbonization goals that are being set around the world, if you look at the electric vehicle goals that are being set around the world, there's just no way that nuclear does not have a role to play in that. Um, yes, solar and wind are gonna continue to get uh, preferential treatment by many governments and subsidization but the reality is they just don't provide enough st- uh, stable baseload power and nuclear has to play that role you know i think what's happening in china is 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 really meaningful in terms of their evolution away from coal as a as a primary means to generate electricity and migrating to nuclear i mean they're they're at the forefront here in terms of this transition from uh, very dirty carbon to, to uh, very low carbon intensity nuclear. So um, We think the narrative's changed. The Biden administration's recent announcement uh, that supporting nuclear and in infrastructure bill is very positive. The recent EU taxonomy on nuclear being part of a safe en- energy mix, I think, is very positive. The Europeans obviously are way ahead of uh, the North Americans on electric vehicles, but you know you saw the Biden administration set goals today or recently of on on uh, 50% targets electric vehicles uh, in the future all of these things require more power more electrification we think nuclear and, and uranium are are getting uh, we're get, they're getting check marks whereas in the past they were getting kind of x's the other interesting thing that we see developing in the marketplace is uranium and nuclear is almost now being put into a low carbon electrification bucket, much like battery material metals are are being uh, uh, specified as, as, as being part of this um, electrification push. So when we talk to investors, you know, things like copper, lithium, cobalt, uh, class one nickel, um, uranium, like all of these things are important elements in order for us to reduce carbon and to move away from fossil fuels and more to electrification, uh, whether that's in transportation or whatnot, so we think the narrative has really changed around nuclear. It's getting a lot of support. Yes, there are countries like Germany that are, you know, wholeheartedly moving away from nuclear. Um, you know, I think that's somewhat short-sighted. Uh, if you look at their CO2 emissions against Relative to their neighbor next door at France, which seventy percent of their power comes from nuclear. and you look at their cost of electricity versus France, uh, there's no comparison. So uh, yes, people want to move away from nuclear in certain countries. Yes, um, you know, some of the Japanese reactors have been much slower to restart than expected. But um, there's a role to play. Um, you know, I happen to live in a part of the world. That generates most of its electricity in a low-carbon format, and uh, we're able to do that because uh, there's three nuclear power plants in the province I live in in Canada. Uh, We have hydro, we have solar and wind, uh, and natural gas being the more favorable of the fossil fuel uh, mix. So most of our our electricity production here uh, comes from fairly low-carbon sources. You know, you contrast that to other parts in the world that are still Largely dependent on coal, um, and it's—I'm it, it, sure it would shock most people to to know that certain countries still rely very heavily on coal to produce electricity. Because you, you think of coal and you, you think of something that maybe was important or 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 very um, dominant maybe a hundred years ago, but some countries are still very reliant on coal. And I think you know, Nat Nat. Uh, coal will be the big loser over time, and things
0: uh, like like renewables and nuclear will will be the winners, yeah, John. I think it's a question of energy quality, energy wealth, obviously that relates to the country uh, subject country that we may be talking about, and uh, obviously that varies throughout the globe and then you know I think when it comes to high class energy sources, which in my view, fission and fusion are in a class of their own, we shouldn't discriminate on high class uh, Forms of energy, which uh, obviously fission and fusion are uh, standalone, and, and nothing else comes close to those two items. Well, let's move on here. ESG money, popular in the market, uh, becoming more popular in the, uh, the natural resource sector. What mm-hmm. is the plan to attract capital into the fund that may be ESG-focused
1: money? Sure. Yeah. I mean, we, you know, we we've seen this uh, profound change in the mining. Uh, industry related to ESG. It's it's uh, not uncommon for a mining company to do a corporate presentation and the first few slides are all about ESG. And I think that's amazing because uh, we don't want the mining industry to have a, a target on its back like the oil uh, industry has for the last few years. The mining industry has really responded to the need for more responsible and sustainable mining and development. and. You know that's in their best interest because that's how they're going to stay in business. That's how they're going to secure social licenses and permit permits around the world uh, and stay in business long term. So I think the mining companies have done a great job in terms of uh, being responsible and, and sustainable and improving their disclosure around this, uh, which I think is is really good as well. I mean, investors need to understand exactly what's being measured, what's being you know through really good disclosure. So. There are a number of, of uh, mining companies that have done a great job. You know, the uranium miners, they're in the same league. If they want capital and they want attract an institutional shareholder base, they have to be good stewards and, 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 and mine sustainably as well. I think for the physical uranium side, I mean, yes, it has to, be, it has to come from sources that people are comfortable with in terms of uh, you know, sustainability and social license and, and um, country of origin. So those are all just table stake items now today for, for most institutional and, and high net worth investors, um, and increasingly for retail investors as they they want to be more green with their investments. But I think the, the bucket where uranium and, and nuclear is really going to go into uh, is around uh, low carbon uh, transition. And, you know, as I said, um, a lot of investors are thinking about not just uranium on its own, but they're thinking of it as part of this mix of metals related to electrification. And, you know, I I mentioned um, that suite of metals, but um, we think that uranium belongs in that bucket, whether it's, you know, copper, graphite, manganese, all all the things that that you need for electrification, for energy production, batteries, uh, energy storage. these metals are are going to be critical to this um, transition away from from higher carbon uh, sources of energy. So um, we think uranium is going to be put in that bucket. And um, you know I, I don't want to be naive and think that all investors are going to view uranium and nuclear um, as green and and safe. But um, I think the reality is that um, the science basically says that this is a very a low source of carbon and a very reliable source of power. And if the world wants to electrify, um, I, I don't see any other means of, of providing that base load of power w- without nuclear
0: being in that mix. Yeah, well said, John. And the outlet on your wall and my wall here, don't come with a disclaimer, you have to accept the energy where this comes from. So important here too, in terms of every subject matter at hand, today is that mining is the backbone for everything and you know this very well and sometimes I think that people forget this in their sophistication uh, with their iPhone etc and their electric vehicle that when they plug into a wall at night where does that come from that is often forgotten in their their haste of living a a life maybe being in a country that's very wealthy to where things are more accessible and easier as compared to maybe developing countries so I absolutely agreed with you and Importantly, mining is just absolutely critical to everything that we're doing. Whether it's energy, whether it's climate change, whether it's technology, it's uh, backed by mining at the end of the day. One other question here before we wrap up. You have one competitor and that's Yellow Cake, essentially. What's the relationship with them and how will you guys get together to collaborate to maximize the effectiveness of both vehicles toward a common goal, towards value creation for unit holders?
1: Well, that's an interesting question. Um, well, I've not spoken to anybody there. Uh, we're obviously focused on our own, uh, our own fund and, and, and making sure it's, it's operating well and, uh, and the marketplace understands how it works. So, I don't really have any comments with respect to our competitors. I do think competition is healthy. Uh, I do think the market uh, needs a number of vehicles to, uh, to invest in. Um, we've seen this in the precious metals markets where you know there has been a proliferation of, of different gold and silver funds over time um, and they all t- tend to cater to, to different audiences and have different features. So, I do think having competitors in the marketplace is important. It keeps everybody honest and uh, gives people choice. So, um, I guess that, that would be my early comment at this point.
0: Well, for potential investors who are on the sidelines um, seeking a physical uranium vehicle, what would you say to them about the Sprout Uranium Trust at this stage and at current price levels where we are in this market, John?
1: Well, I think um, you know investors should have a look at the fund, and they can they can come to our website sprout.com forward slash uranium. Uh, on that page, you'll get all the information about the fund and its holdings. And uh, I think you know it's all about educating yourself. Uh, about what you own. You need to understand what you own and and what's inside the vehicle. Transparency is really important to uh, us. So I, I think we've done a good initial job of providing as much detail as possible. And over time, we will provide more information. The fund is the largest uh, fund of its kind. And I think that's important in terms of size and liquidity over time. And, and also the, you know, the capital raising capability of that fund to provide more liquidity over time. So that's important. Uh, fees are very competitive uh, at 35 basis point as the management fee plus the operating expenses. And, you know, generally, if you're interested in uranium, it's a very convenient way to, to buy and, and hold it. And I think it's also a very nice complement to investors that uh, are invested in the uranium equities. Uh, the physical is a nice complement to the equities. And we often talk to investors in the in the mining space where they like to take positions in the physical metals and they also like to own the, uh, the equities
0: for, for greater upside potential. And best way for interested parties to reach out to Sprott about this vehicle?
1: Yeah, the easiest way to be, would be to email uranium@sprott.com. That's s-p-r-o-t-t.com.
0: John, we look forward to tracking your progress as well as the potential for this vehicle to really uh, bring forward the timeline for this uranium thesis. Uh, keep up the progress. Best of luck and stay in touch.
1: Great. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it.